Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Theron Muller, Associate Professor at the University of Toyama. Dr. Muller, how are you? I'm just fine. Thank you very much for inviting me to be on the program. It's very exciting to talk with you. Hopefully we won't get too much construction noise, as I told you before we started recording. My neighbor uh, nicely brought me over a box of cookies and told me that there was going to be loud noises for the month. So, the <laughs> uh, Japanese courtesy, it's very, it's very appreciative, but um, it's hard when you're working from home, I guess, to get uh, construction noise, but I guess that's neither, neither here nor there. <laughs> Yeah, don't feel like it's necessarily an advantage. I've been in my office the whole time, and they've been building a building right next to my office the whole time for I, the last three months. So I thought I moved into a neighborhood that that was beyond me. I, my whole life, I was living in places where there was always construction, and I was assuming that's because I was always renting apartments. But I guess we're at this stage in this neighborhood where everyone is upgrading their house, and it's just I don't, I don't know if one person is doing it, and then the other person feels they have to do it, but that's what's going on right now. It's keeping up, with the, keeping up with the Joneses. Do they have a phrase yeah, was, for that in Japan? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine in the States, and she said that basically the same thing's happening there. A bunch of people are staying home, and so they're finally getting around to all those home improvement projects they had on the list that had never been ticked off. Right. So, all right. So today we're going to be discussing a chapter of your dissertation, and the dissertation is called An Exploration of the experiences of Japan-based English language teachers writing for academic publications. If you'd like to read this dissertation, I have posted the link in the show notes, and it's a it it brings you to a website, I guess, associated with your your PhD, Open Research Online. So, if people would yeah. like to read that, it is available for download, right? Yeah. So, well done on getting the title out all in one breath. Um, I think the <laughs> Open University has their open repository, and so all the theses have to be published through that open repository. So that's where the link takes you, is Open University's repository for research. Before we get into the paper, can I ask you a little bit of your background? What, what brought you to Japan? Uh, maybe how long have you been in Japan, and what led you to your interest in being in editor and and not only that but then going further on and doing a phd on on uh this topic um so i moved to japan in 2000 and i started at a one of the national language school chains um and then i kind of moved from there to a more local language school chain and then i moved to having uh, my own school and then teaching part-time at a variety of different places in Nagano. Um, and early on, I realized that this language teaching was something I enjoyed, but I didn't know very much about it. My background, my uh, undergraduate degree is in uh, psychology. Um, so I didn't have very much exposure to um, kind of theories of teaching and strategies for teaching. And so I decided that um, if this was something I was going to keep doing, I needed to get some more training. So I started with um, the University of Birmingham's master's in um, teaching English, which I graduated from in 2004. And um, after that, I had set aside a certain amount of time each week to work on my master's and I kind of concluded that um, I could either use that time for other pursuits or I could try to keep at least some of that time available to spend to um, kind of continue to work on professional development and so I started volunteering for um, the language teacher with JALT Publications as a proofreader and I um, got involved with the uh, conference proceedings back in like 2006, 2007. And um, I went through the cycle of um, becoming the language teacher co-editor from I think 2007 to 2009. And um, I did some research from the perspective of an editor while I was doing that, um, a number of papers from that time were published, co-authored co with uh, John Adamson. And I started to realize that there was another angle that could be researched, looking at the author's perspectives of writing for publication, as opposed to writing from an editor's perspective. 
But um, at the time, I was working part-time in Nagano. I had my own language school. And so I think the last semester I was in Nagano, I was teaching 28 classes uh, a week. And so there just wasn't time to do um, PhD study. And then I got this full-time position at the University of Toyama, moved to Toyama, and my teaching load changed drastically, which meant that I had more time to think about research. And so I came back to this um, idea I had for a PhD to look at um, authors' experiences of writing for publication. And I started it in um, 2012, and then I finished it in uh, November of 2018. Well, congratulations on that. It's quite a... (laughs) It's quite a big file here. <laughs> yeah, thank you. When I started, I was hoping to finish in three years, but you know, life gets in the way. So it took six to finish, but I'm glad that it's behind me instead of ahead of me at this point. This is a really interesting topic. I, I've talked about this on a previous interview before, where this is a topic I am really interested in, but I definitely wouldn't want to be the one doing the research, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, that does. That does make sense. I think I remember I think I remember that podcast. I've been trying to do some background listening to get ready for this interview. So I think I remember you mentioning that on one of those previous podcasts. Yeah, there's lot there's lots of those topics. For example, you know, emotions of teaching. I'm interested in the case studies, but I don't want to be the one to, to go through the grunt work. And I think it's a little bit similar to that to that podcast where I was talking about how I didn't want to research emotions of language teaching, because when you're dealing with, with editing and review processes, you're going to be dealing with a lot of emotions as well. So mm-hmm. I, my personality tends to not, I don't know. I try to avoid even being involved in, I don't even want to be the treasurer of my, my, my SIG at JALT when they, they're, they're asking me to, to do something to, 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 you know, take part. And I'd like mm-hmm. to help out cause I, I appreciate the SIG and I appreciate JALT. And I respect people that, you know, volunteer, but I'm just so terrified I'm going to get in some sort of altercation with somebody. So I just try to avoid, <laughs> I just try to avoid anything where I'm going to have some emotional interaction with somebody. Yeah, I see. And I yeah, just, I kind of, I kind of on the other side, like, um, I did a bunch of research into task-based language teaching and I got up to, um, I got up to a certain point in that research, uh, back when I was still in Nagano, where I saw kind of the field ahead of me and what I could do in terms of a really big project that would have been the equivalent to a PhD. And I said, oh, wow, this could really add something to the field. And then I said, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the one, I'm not interested enough, enough in this to be the one to do the actual work of putting it all together and getting it all done. So I can kind of relate to the feeling. What was your experience, your first experiences submitting something for publication? Were they positive or negative? Uh, my very first experience, I got very lucky. Um, Jane Willis and Corinne Edwards um, were co-authoring a book on task-based language teaching. And Corinne Edwards was one of the um, teachers on the, Birmingham, on the Birmingham MA program. And so she sent out a call for proposals for book chapters for this project. And um, Jane Willis did something similar when she was teaching on the Aston program. And so that ended up being a uh, book project that involved a bunch of Aston students and a bunch of University of Birmingham students contributing chapters. It was um, it was actually quite successful. It was the uh, winner of an Elton Award for the year that it was published, which I think was 2007 or 2008. Or maybe it was published in 2006 and then it won the award either 2006 or 2007. But um, the funny, a funny story there is that um, there was another person in Nagano who actually contributed a chapter to that book, Greg Birch, who was at uh, Nagano Seisen University. And we had never met each other. We actually ended up meeting through that book project, despite the fact that we lived just minutes from one another. So That's cool. I mean, I was... I, I was fortunate enough as well. My first, my first article that I submitted for publication was actually to the language teacher, and it was accepted. And it took a lot of, you know, spurring on from my advisors from my master's degree, and they sort of pumped some confidence into me. So I, def- I definitely empathize with people in the publish or review process. 
because I think it takes a lot of courage for someone to submit something for publication the very first time. I think after mm-hmm. you maybe get something submitted and you go through the process and you see how it works, it's a little easier to do it the second time. I, uh, my heart definitely goes out to people who are hesitant to submit something for publication. And then if they have a negative experience, it might affect them. I, I was very lucky that I was accepted and then I was able to go through that review process. I'm really thankful that happened instead of the flip side where if I, if I was rejected, I'm, you know, some people sort of respond well to that and they say, okay, well, I'm going to do better. And some people get really crushed. Do you find the same, mm-hmm. the, the same thing happening? Well, I mean, that's the, your story and my story are kind of the reason why I thought doing this investigation from the author's perspective um, would be so interesting because uh, there's a kind of there's a kind of narrative that people tell of you know your first publication is here and then you build confidence and then your next publication is here and there's this kind of image of a stepladder of um, increasing quality of publication, whatever the measurement of quality is, um, as one goes through the process. But um, my first publication was a chapter in the book, and I talked with um, other people who had published there, and they said to me, you know, we were really lucky that we had this opportunity. We were really lucky that we got this book chapter publication um, as our first publication. And as I've talked around, as I've shared stories with um, different authors, I find that that in particular, the first couple publications people have, um, they, in my experience anyway, in the stories I've heard anyway, they tend not to follow that kind of careful narrative of, well, you know, I started off publishing this kind of small article here, and then I built a bit of confidence, and then I went and I published this next bigger paper in this bigger journal here, and then that gave me more confidence to do um, an even bigger paper or an even bigger project. I just I find that um, that isn't that tends not to be people's experiences, and I was curious to investigate it, and I mean having. The PhD behind me now, I can say that for the vast majority of authors, that wasn't their experience as they related it to me and as I kind of um, documented it in terms of what they had published and where they had published their work. I think one reason I have more confidence for publication now is going through the review process. You know, after the review process, it's not really your paper anymore. I mean, it is, but there were a lot of changes that were made as far as sentences and the way things were worded. And it, that took me a little, a little bit of time to get used to that where I, I didn't want to let certain sentences go. You know, I really like the way I wrote that, but then you, so it's almost as I feel if I get rejected to a journal now, I would feel, Oh, I'm just not, this, this isn't really what the journal is looking for. I don't think I take it personally. And I think part of the reason I say that is because even when it was accepted, it was, it, there, there was a part of it that was changed that was adapted to the journal and I'm, and I'm totally fine with that. So I, I'm less attached to it emotionally, I, I think, now when I'm submitting. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there's an excellent chapter in um, a book by uh, Kassanev and Vandrick that talks about an author who was trying to publish in um, a particular journal. And the journal asked for a number of different changes. And it went through a number of different iterations. And it was ultimately rejected. And so then she sent the revised manuscript that had been rejected to a new journal. And the new journal came back and said, this isn't really what we're looking for. And she said, well, you know, I have this original paper before all the reviews and before all the revisions. Why don't you, would you be willing to take a look at that? And the editor said, yeah, sure. And then that original paper ended up going through a review at the second journal and ended up being ultimately published. And so... I think one of the stories of the whole review process is that it's not a kind of neutral, um, gradually objectively improving a paper, but rather it tends to be more of um, journals revising papers according to their image of what they're trying to project or what they're trying to promote. And I, I think within within a given you know it's easy to say you know this journal does this but within a given journal you have individuals who are who are interacting with the paper rather than the journal as an organization interacting with paper so if your paper gets 
two reviews and one of the reviewers has a particular vision for the manuscript that may end up taking over that may end up being the direction the manuscript has to go in and um, often what I explain to authors when I do kind of publishing workshops is um, viewing it as a process means that every paper that goes through that process ends up being changed in some way like very 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 rarely is there a accept without any revisions right on the first round of review of a manuscript. So almost all manuscripts are being shaped in some way um, through the publication process. And so how that shaping forms depends on where the journal, where the manuscript was submitted to and who at that journal at that t particular time ended up looking at the manuscript and writing evaluations of it. Do you have any advice for people on how to seek out which kind of journal to submit to? Because I think that's really important from what we just talked about. And I, for me, I've just started my PhD and a lot of the guidance I'm getting for journals to submit to now is from them because I'm, I'm doing it in psychology. And then I'm, there's also a computer-based part of my PhD. So I, I'm looking for, you know, human interaction journals. But there, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole world of journals out there and it can be sort of overwhelming. Is there is there sort of uh, do you do you, advi do you have advice beyond you know go local and then and then and then branch out because you see people publications a wide variety of publications and sometimes I I also wonder like how, how over time do they just know which journals to submit to I mean is there is there a good database that ranks these journals how how do people end up submitting where they submit success successfully um, I mean, there's there's a few different questions you you asked there. So I, I think I'll I'll start by answering the first question, and then I'll kind of I'll I'll go a little bit broader, and I'll answer the question about databases a bit later. Um, I think the the first thing, if an author is looking to publish, I think in a, the first thing to think about is what is your purpose in trying to publish, or in, in trying to write, or in trying to embark on a particular project. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that context in this case can be very, very local. One of my favorite stories that I like to tell about this is um, I, I was giving a publishing workshop uh, years ago and a textbook author walked up to me and he said, you know, I was working at such and such a university and I went up to the university president and I said, you know, I have these textbook publications. Do they count as my, do they count as publications on, on this academic publication list? And the university president looked at me and he said, this is a medical school. Of course they don't count. And then he said he'd moved, changed universities. He was at a humanities university and the president of the university had published his own textbooks. And so he went to the, the university president again and he said, do these publications, these textbooks I wrote, do these count as publications? And the university president looked at him and said, of course they do. And so you can get a kind of perspective of the inconsistencies between one place and another place. But I think the, the interesting part of that for me is that both of those university presidents, when they expressed their opinion on the matter, when they made a judgment on the matter, they both used, of course, and so from their perspective, they thought that their judgment was the correct one. So in one case, the judgment was correct that, of course, they don't count. And in the other case, the judgment was correct that, of course, they do count. And so textbooks typically aren't the kinds of things that are being counted as academic publications. But in certain contexts, if you have a textbook that may end up counting toward um, the institution's evaluations of your publications. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. So like if you're starting on a PhD and you're interacting with, I would assume you're doing your PhD with, I, I think I've listened to the podcast a few times, I can't remember exactly which country, but you're doing your PhD with uh, a country where English is the main language, right? Yeah, in Australia. In Australia. And so I, I would think what tends to happen with um, Anglophone countries in particular, is they tend, the universities among the Anglophone countries tend to set a kind of consistent, or I don't know if they, the word, it's the right word to set, but they tend to follow the standards of other universities within that kind of Anglophone circle. 
And so they tend to decide that certain journals have, or certain kinds of publications have more value. So if you look at, say, um, publication values, relative values, say in the 1980s, book publication was considered particularly prestigious. But if you advance more toward today, and you talk to academics who are, say, working in the UK today, they would probably say to you that book publication is only going to count as prestigious if it's with certain prestigious publishers, rather than just a book with a publisher. You know, it, it, the, there's a kind of expectation that there's only certain publishers that count, quote unquote, count um, for book publication. So if you're working with a university in Australia, you probably have your supervisors are used to working with certain kinds of journals and are recommending certain kinds of journals that probably look a bit different from, say, if you're in a humanities faculty at a small liberal arts university in Japan, where they may think they may have quite different um, evaluation standards regarding where they expect you to publish or what's considered journals that count toward publications. Yeah, that's a great point. There, There's an episode with uh, Dr. Jennifer Larson Hall hasn't been released yet. I guess, I guess by the, by the time this comes out, it'll be released, but she mentioned going for a job. And at that point she had published a few books, I mean, real books and a lot of academic articles. And I guess she was competing with someone and, and she mentioned how the, the person she was talking to said, well, the other, the other person kind of has a leg up on you because they have 30, they have 30, uh, articles pu- published. And then she looked at the articles and they were all in the, the local Keo. And she mm-hmm. said they're all, but I, so I guess it, it goes to what you say. It depends on the context. You know, in some universities in Japan, the Kyo, you know, just publishing in, in your local Kyo is, is acceptable, right? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that publishing, in the, the, the way the system works is there tends to be, there tends to be a kind of front facing, objective looking kind of points allocation system where they say like an article in this journal gets you so many points. And then on the other end, there tends to be a kind of implicit um, or kind of more hidden, uh, more subjective evaluation of the actual quality or, or the actual contribution of um, a given manuscript. But it often times depends on, who you're talking to. If you're talking to somebody who isn't from the field and who doesn't understand the field very much. So for example, if you have a mathematician who's um, on the hiring committee for a language teacher, maybe they don't feel comfortable deciding which papers are of relative, relatively more weight than other papers, but it's fairly easy for them to say, well, on this numbered list, they get to 30, whereas on your numbered list, you only get to eight. And so 30 is obviously a higher number than eight. And so it's kind of an easy way for people to make a a comparison. Um, But I think a lot of times behind the scenes, there's more going on than just that. I think um, it didn't end up in my PhD, but one of the um, authors that I talked to had said that um, once they found out that... uh, they had the right to publish in a Kio and that the number of publications counted, they ended up publishing four Kio publications per year. Every year they were at this university for either four or five years with the intention of that being able to um, help them to find a job at another university uh, when they had to leave that um, limited contract position. And, I'm not convinced that a hiring committee would look at a resume and say, oh, four Keo publications per year. That's four times more impressive than having done one publication per year. I mean, I think you might get some benefit from it, but I don't know that um, it's it's a numerical benefit that that is a multiplier as opposed to just adding a little bit more 
than otherwise. Does that make sense? Did you follow that kind of yeah. reasoning there? Yeah. Can you can you finish off the question about the database, and then I, I have a question. I want to jump into the section of your thesis. Okay. So the question about the database is: Yes, there is a database, and um, it's a totally different book chapter that I that I wrote that was quite critical of the database. Um, the database that tends to be used to rank journals is um, the web of science. And um, the term that tends to be used is impact factor. And there, there are several different indexes of journals within the web of science. So you have like the social science index um, tends to be where a lot of the journals in our field, if they are indexed, end up in. Um, and then if you're in the field of medicine, there's PubMed, which is kind of an equivalent. Um, there's also journal listings. For example, um, I've heard some people, some universities in, in some national context in some countries um, are very interested in whether a journal is indexed in the Scopus index or not, which is, I think the Scopus index doesn't give you an impact factor, but it lists journals that have met their standard for inclusion, basically. Um, so while those indices exist, and while I think it's important to say that um, they are used as a kind of general measure of the quality of one's publication. So if you publish a paper that's in a, in a journal with an impact factor, that's say five versus publishing in a journal that has an impact factor of say one, there are a number of different places that will consider that impact factor five journal publication to be more prestigious than the impact factor of one journal publication. Those numbers are rather arbitrary, and there's been a lot of criticism of the numbers because uh, my favorite is an author named Seglin, who I think in 2007 he put the impact factor of the journal and the number of times a paper had been cited based on the impact factor of the journal and if there was any kind of correlation, you would expect to see a line as the impact factor of the journal goes up, the number of times the paper is cited goes up, but instead it looks like a kind of random scatter plot on his graphs. So you just have the numbers go all over the place. And what he said was something like as many as 80% of the papers published in a given journal with an impact factor either aren't cited or the number of times they're cited has very little impact, very little influence on the impact factor of that journal. What actually influences the impact factor of a given journal is a very number, a very small number of publications that are cited a very large number of times. Was the argument that he ended up making? Oh, and then there that's are, interesting. And then there are arguments about the fact that how many times a paper is cited is not necessarily a good measure of the impact of that paper. So I think my the best example I can think of just off the top of my head here is we're both working in the field of language education. And so I teach um, students on uh, different master's programs um, with the University of Birmingham and the University of Leicester. And if a student cites a paper in their master's assignment, that counts toward nothing as far as impact factor goes. So that's not a publication. But I would say that students reading your work and citing your work does have some kind of impact relative to society, does have some kind of impact relative to the field, because that means that the ideas that you're sharing through your articles are getting out there, but it's not something that's measured in impact factor measure. Yeah, I mean, that... That makes sense. I mean, it's interesting you talked about that that article that that didn't find the correlation because I thought the impact factor was based on citations, and so what what that person was saying was that so that the impact factor was raised by a certain number of publications, not not generally speaking. So maybe yes, yes, once so, or I mean, twice the, a year or something. You get a huge. Yeah. So the thing is, the journal gets the impact factor. A given paper in the journal doesn't get the impact factor. 
Right. So the impact factor for the journal is the impact factor for all of the papers published in that journal for a given year um, or for a given set of years. The other criticism is like editorials and other kind of art kinds of articles that you might argue aren't of the same kind of academic clout as an original research paper also end up being counted, also end up being thrown into the soup mix of counting um, citations to the journal. So like the book reviews section, I think in some cases at least ends up being counted um, as part of that journal's citations and as part of the impact factor calculation. At least that's the, well, some of the criticisms that have been raised in the research I've read on the topic. All right, let's jump into the paper. For people reading at home, we're starting the, the section we're kind of looking at is from page 327 to page 337, starting with uh, chapter 8. So I actually wanted to, to talk a little bit about 8.2, which is the 8.2, 8.2.3, Japan-based writing for academic publication. And you reference a case study from chapter four. And I kind of wanted to, to talk a little bit about this, this phenomenon with maybe Japanese PhD, PhD students. And you also looked at a, a person named Junpei. So you, you mentioned one PhD, one Japanese PhD student not profiled in chapter four explained that he saw outside Japan index journal publications publication as a means to circumvent the Japan-based journal power structures he felt critical of. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to say something quickly. There is someone that I know, I, I won't mention their name, but they recently finished a PhD. This is a Japanese person, um, finished their PhD, their advisor retired. They submitted, this is one of those, you know, bad, unfortunate situations or bad luck where the, I guess, you know, their advisor retired. And so, they weren't there to sort of stand up for them on the committee and their dissertation was uh, rejected and oh, wow. with no comments, uh, no, no revisions, just flat out rejected. And he thought that it was possible the person that rejected it, it was more of a competitive thing where he was one of the only, he, he's researching a, a very sort of specific area where there aren't many positions in Japan. And mm -hmm. he thought possibly he was rejected uh, as far as a, as far as a political thing. And he was really shattered over it. And I actually, um, I actually recommended him to go ahead and try to get it published somewhere else. And he actually published it as a book. But at, at this point, he does not have a PhD. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is maybe first, can you set up some of the case studies that you, why you chose those in chapter four? Mm -hmm. And like, for example, why did you end up keeping Junpei in the dissertation? And why did you not? put this Japanese PhD student who you referenced, which kind of makes sense to my own personal experience with, with the person that I just said. Um, so I think one thing that's worth saying is uh, the PhD project that I did, the larger project ended up putting a number of different constraints on what I could and couldn't include. So what I set out to do is I wanted to be able to have an author profile and I wanted to be able to link that profile of that author to a specific text that they had published. And that text that they had published, I didn't want to just do a kind of genre analysis of the public published text, but I actually wanted to do an analysis of how that text had changed over the course of being published. So from a relatively early draft all the way through to its publication. And I didn't want to just analyze the changes to the text, but I wanted to analyze the larger conversation that was going on around the text. For example, the reviewer's comments on the text and then the correspondence between the author and the editor to not just say what changed in the text, but also how it changed. And so that kind of larger purpose ended up constraining in a number of different ways who I could and couldn't include in the larger study in terms of presenting a profile, presenting an analysis of how the text changed, and then also presenting an analysis of 
the um, discourse that surrounded the text changing. So Junpei ended up staying in because he gave me a text history that included several versions of a manuscript and the correspondence surrounding that manuscript that I could analyze late in later chapters. The other um, PhD student I had talked to said he was going to send me stuff, but I never got anything. And so I didn't have manuscripts to analyze. And um, I think this kind of gets to a methodological point, but um, my PhD took a constructivist stance, which basically says that people kind of represent their reality by talking about their reality. So it isn't like, um, I mean, the stance I took in the PhD at least is it's not necessarily that these people have an opinion about the publication and then I'm going to them and having a conversation with them to try to extract from their mind what that opinion is. But it's more in talking about their experiences, in talking about this publication they did, they construct a kind of story or a kind of narrative about their experience. And that's what I was interested in, was their construction of their narrative and their experience, which is actually pretty consistent with how um, psychological researchers see memory working now, is that... Um, People kind of, you don't necessarily recall a memory so much as you reconstruct a memory in each retelling of it. So um, I didn't necessarily want to be able to take their story and contrast that with their experience of having gone through publication. So I wasn't necessarily looking for a kind of quote-unquote objective validation or verification of what their experience was. But what I was very interested in was having more than just their story to look at. So I didn't want to just have what they said and just use that as the start and the end point for my analysis, but I wanted to have what they said about their experience. And then I wanted to have some documentation of their experience that was outside of their kind of personal story of it that I could look at. In this case, it was the manuscript changing and then that correspondence, so I could look at what they said about it, and then I could look at kind of that other evidence of their experience of it and draw some insights between them. Well, that, that makes sense. I mean, with with this section that we're going over today, Chapter 8, the beginning of Chapter 8, I was, I was really drawn to, again, 8.2.3. I, I would say there's multiple articles or even a book that could be written from some of the themes that are based here. You're going over a few things. I mean, global Englishes isn't really my specialty. My, uh, the other person who does interviews, Chris, he's more into global Englishes. You, you, you hit on a couple of themes about, you know, native versus non-native speakers. You, you also hint on the, you, you kind of imply, oh, I don't know if you meant to, but again, biased from my own experience, it seems like it's a little bit easier for native uh, English speakers or foreign, foreigners to Japan to publish as compared to the Japanese publication, like that, like you mentioned, that that one student was thinking it might be publishing outside of Japan. There's lots of there's lots of interesting themes going on in here. Have you thought to expand this section into something else, and maybe you uh, know draw on some of these themes? Um, I think in my own mind, I see my PhD research as being at least three different journal articles and. Um, one of my intentions uh, for last year was to start to extract them out and start to submit them off for um, review. But um, I ended up um, being recruited to rescind my role as the language teacher co-editor. And so I ended up much busier with that last year than I had anticipated I would be. And so I haven't quite gotten to that yet. I think this particular section of the thesis um, is kind of a summary of the summary. So in my mind, what I see is um, in uh, one of the chapters, I have a kind of summary, I have a kind of graphic that shows how the manuscript changed over time. And I think that graphic adds uh, important perspective to seeing how papers change over time. And so I see one journal paper coming out of it based on that. Um, I see another paper coming out that's based on um, how the authors and the editors interact in the correspondence. 
And then I think there is a paper embedded in the author profiles, but I think that one to me is that one to me is fruit that's a bit higher up on the tree, something that's going to take a little bit more work to kind of tease out how to get the author profiles into a journal article that's kind of standalone, independent of the thesis. Um, it's not that I'm a, it's not that I'm averse to the challenge of doing that. It's just not a challenge that I've taken upon myself just yet. Well, I hope you do, because I think there's some important things to go over. Again, from my personal experience learning about this story of, of a colleague, mm-hmm. I came to feel that it's it's a little bit easier as a as a foreigner in Japan to publish than as a Japanese. And I've also heard that it's, it's harder to get a PhD in Japan if you're Japanese than if you're a foreigner. And I don't I know if that's worth you know pursuing in, in this. I mean, it is tied into a lot of the things you're talking about because you, you talked about motivations for publication you know so, you know most of those are, are to seek employ, employment you also talked about you know uh, improving teaching practice or addressing various audiences of interest to them but if it, if it is the sake of of reaching employment or better employment and it's there's a bias to Japanese over foreigners again maybe it's not the best place for a foreigner to do that research but it is kind of interesting when you start digging at some of these these issues, especially if you need a PhD to get a tenure job in Japan. The, these sort of things. Um, I guess that's not really that's not really your main focus, but you know, doing such a deep dive as a PhD, you're gonna you're gonna be hitting some of these topics, right? It's it's inevitable. Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting things for me was. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different things at play here. So, I was talking to so Jinpei, um, which is a pseudonym, but um, the Jinpei character that I represent that I talk about in the thesis that I that I analyze his experience in the thesis. He was a full time PhD student who went from straight from undergrad to a master's program, from his master's into his PhD. Um, and the master's and the PhD were both being done at the same university, basically with the same set of faculty. And so he's um, not coming at the experience of writing for publication from the perspective of most of the um, foreign resident authors that I included who tended to come to Japan, start teaching and then as part of seeking employment in higher education, we're also doing um, publishing, writing for publication, because that's one of the expectations for working in Japanese higher education. Um, What I ended up finding doing the PhD was there's gaps in information that are a lot more basic than kind of these more advanced um, concerns about identity and um, say language background. Like one of the conversations I had with my supervisors was, well, why, why do these people need to have publications if they're working part-time in universities? Like that is not an expectation of people who work part-time in universities. And so I actually had to like go get job advertisements and include extracts from job advertisements in my PhD that were part-time advertisements for jobs or or advertisements for jobs at universities in Japan for part-time employment that also stated the requirement that somebody had to have so many um, publications. And I know that not all part-time jobs do require publication. And so I think there's a research question there which is how many of these positions are asking people to show evidence of publication, how many of them are asking people to show, you know, minimum numbers of publications. And there's um, a conflict, a conflict almost in, in like the hiring committee, because if, if, for example, you have a job position and they say at least three public evidence for at least three publications must be provided that's quite a bit different from a position that says, um, please include exam- please include a list of all of your publications and please choose three representative peer-reviewed publications 
and include those copies of those papers in your application materials. So one is kind of setting a, a minimum and maybe, you know, there's at least three publications required and the committee isn't as in, doesn't seem to be at least from the way the text is written as interested in what those publications are so much as they can show that there's an evidence of you having published three. Whereas in the other version, they're asking you to actually submit samples of your work. And then they'll, at least in theory, read through those samples of your work as part of the, uh, the review process. So I, what, I, what I found was that's something that so far I haven't found that's very much that's been written about that, proving that part-time teachers need to have publications in Japan. So there's some basic questions that it feels to me at least um, could be filled out in the literature. All right, maybe uh, last thing on your paper, and then I wanted to get into some tips on getting published in, in JAL. You mentioned that you found in your research that people started out doing teaching-focused articles and that they were transformed into research-oriented prose. What, mm-hmm. what, is that, what, exactly, what exactly do you mean by that? And was that do you, do you find that that was a good thing or you, you found that that was – like what was your conclusion – why that happened and what, what's your opinion on that? Um, well, I think in the thesis, I w- tried to be very neutral in terms of my representations of changes to manuscripts. So what I would say is the manuscripts were changed in this way. And I tried very much not to say this was good and this was bad because that's all a, a, a kind of, that, that's all relative. What is good is relative depending on um, the person that's looking at the person that's looking at the change. Um, I think I'll give you two different examples just, just to kind of situate this for the listeners. So one example is Junpei, who's a PhD student who does a research project that involves um, essentially language learners going into a room doing a kind of mock task, a mock kind of language language activity, and then leaving the room. And the research is analyzing their recordings to try to prove something about, uh, to try to prove something about uh, what they were doing in the activity and how that ended up influencing their language. And so in the earlier version of his manuscript, there was a lot of detail about what the people were, what the participants, the kind of mock learners were being asked to do in the task, in that kind of activity. Whereas in the ultimately published version of his manuscript, a lot of that description about the kind of step-by-step what they were doing in the activity was taken out. And there was a lot more discussion of, their dialogue or the analysis of their of their recorded analyzed transcripts as data and so there was this focus that was taken that in the initial paper at least there was this kind of focus on what they were being asked to do that was then shifted to more of an analysis of the data that he gathered as a result of asking them to do that thing and so even there, for a PhD student who, who felt that he was very research-oriented, even there, there was this change in the manuscript from being more oriented to what the learners were, had been asked to do to an orientation toward what the data was telling him about the research questions he was asking. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and if, if you don't mind, the yeah. other example is... Um, Kathy's example where she was looking at learners in the classroom and doing uh, she was essentially showing them clips from movies and then she was having them do some activities related to the clips from movies that she was showing and in her initial paper there was a lot of focus on how she got the class set up how she introduced the topics um, the different activities she had the s- students do in the context of um, these activities she was doing. And 
by the end, the published manuscript focused much less on what the teacher was doing with the students in the classroom and much more on the larger kind of structure or the larger kind of thinking behind the theory, a more of a theorization of why she was doing what she was doing. So there wasn't a lot of discussion of what was happening in the classroom. There was more discussion of why she was doing what she was doing, more integration of the literature into the paper. Um, and so from her perspective, it was a kind of fraught, the, the revision to the manuscript was a kind of fraught experience because she was interested in talking to a fellow teacher about what she had done in the classroom in order to help them to do something similar in the classroom in the future. Whereas uh, one of the reviewers commented something like, you need to explain what you did so that somebody else could quote unquote replicate it in the future. So there was more of this kind of positivistic orientation toward um, a kind of experimental setup. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So I guess if people want to read more in, more in detail, again, it's kind of hard to go over all of this in, in an hour. Uh, the, the article, the, sorry, the dissertation is an exploration of the experiences of Japan-based English language teachers writing for academic publication. And I posted that link on the show notes. I'd like to get into a very popular presentation that go, that goes on at Jout, which is great, and it's called "Getting Published in Jout Publications." We don't need to go over the, you know, the the whole presentation, of course. But do you have any do you have any tips for writers? Because there's a few different publications. There's the Language Teacher, which I believe is looking for articles around less than thirty five hundred words, and then you have the the Jout journal which is a, a longer publication is there is there any others or it's just those two um so with jolt publications there is the language teacher there's jolt journal there's the post conference proceedings or the post conference publication excuse me uh which was formerly the conference proceedings but now it is its own standalone online publication each year oh cool um I don't think I'm missing anything there. And then um, there are a number of chapter and JALT chapter and JALT special interest group publications that don't fall under the umbrella of JALT publications, but they are publications that are pr produced by JALT. So you have like the OnQ journal, extensive reading in Japan. Um, the Pragmatic SIG produces a uh, publication. And then Jolt Call Journal. I'm sure I'm missing some. I'm looking at the uh, getting published in Jolt publication slides, and so those are the four that are on the screen. I know the there. mind, the mind, brain, so, and education SIG. They put out a, a monthly journal. I'm not sure if that falls under the umbrella as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you go to, um, sorry, I'm trying to type here. I'm trying to think on the fly. If you go to Jolt.org. And there's a, there is a list under the publications um, heading. There's JALT publications, and they've got a number of SIG publications listed there and a number of chapter publications in addition to um, the three JALT publications that I mentioned. So for someone who's looking to submit to the, the language teacher or the JALT journal, Obviously, there's two different word counts. That would be the first thing I would, I would, if I was going to give advice, I would say make sure you look at the word count because uh, that's a big deal. I mean, I think some people sort of ignore that. I don't know why. <laughs> it's very clear you're looking for a certain word count. Beyond the, the word count, and I guess, it, you know, beyond the scope of once you see the word count and how big your article is, do you have any sort of general advice for people that are submitting articles to the language teacher or JALT journal? Well, I think um, I would probably go back. I would probably go back before the word count. I would probably say if you're looking at a paper and the word count of the paper, and you're trying to decide which journal to put it into, you've you've done it already a little bit upside down. I think that the better way to do it, the better way to approach publication is to think about what journal you're aiming for, and to look at the requirements of the journal, and then to try to tailor what you write to those requirements. Um, the language teacher 
at least the remit is uh, we're interested in papers that are focused on teaching um, with the Japan focus. There are two different kinds of submission. One is a feature article, which is supposed to present some original research. And then the other is Reader's Forum, which can be kind of more of an argumentative essay structure. Although on occasion, we also do um, publish some research that ends up in the Reader's Forum. Um, the feature articles tend to be a bit longer. I think it's up to 4,000 words now, but I'd have to double check the submission requirements. And then Reader's Forum tend to be a bit shorter. I think it's, um, I think it's officially uh, 2,500 words. But again, I'd have to go check it myself because it's not something I keep in my head all the time. Um, the thing to keep in mind about Jolt Journal is it is researched focused. So, I mean, it's language teaching research focus, but it's very much more on the, it's very much more interested in discussions of research that relate to teaching as opposed to discussions of teaching where you've done a little bit of research. Um, and it also tends to have a much lower acceptance rate for submissions than the language teacher. Um, I think the other thing to do is if you can try to find a paper in if you're whichever journal you're looking for, it doesn't matter whether it's a JALT publication or not, try to find a paper in the journal that looks something like what you're trying to do and see how that author structured their argument, presented their argument, and go through the journals that you're submitting through to and where you can link into the conversation that's going on in those journals, because that helps to show that you've created a paper that's intended for that journal's audience, as opposed to you've created a paper and then you've started going through word count requirements to see where you might be able to send it to. All right. So the, the moral of that story is don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> No, I guess I, what I meant was um, when I – I guess that was my first major feedback from the language teacher. So that's why it kind of stuck in my head was that the word count was way too high because mm -hmm. um, I kind of assumed that they wanted the full context of the full paper. And they they absolutely did not they, – they, I guess that was that was my experience that the, the, the very first feedback was you need to cut this down before we're going to, before we're, we're going to read it. And I don't mm -hmm. know why I thought, I guess when I submitted it, the first, I don't know why I thought that that was my first time submitting. So now when I, when I submit something, I make sure it doesn't go over the word count. My, because I, I know that that's the first sort of criticism that I got, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I guess one thing to keep in mind is that in in the field of language teaching and in the field particularly like the um, JALT, what we've been talking about, the Japan Association of Language Teachers, I think you're always going to have a relatively new group of people coming in to the writing for publication process who aren't very familiar with what's being expected, what's, with what's expected. And so as an editor, I've kind of come to expect that there's always going to be a certain group of authors who are submitting content um, who aren't entirely clear the extent to which what they're writing fits with the remit of the journal. Um, and, I mean, that isn't necessarily a criticism of uh, the, the people who are submitting content to our journal. I'm sure that all journals around the world have similar problems. I even have evidence of it from my own data of um, one of my author participants had like a spreadsheet with a list of a bunch of different really well-known journals in the field. And he had basically like sent a paper to one journal, got a rejection, sent it to the next journal, got a rejection, sent it to the next journal, got a rejection. And it was pretty obvious looking at the table that the paper that they were sending didn't really fit the remit of any of the journals, but they didn't know where to start. They didn't quite know how to approach it. So they started by submitting the submitting the paper and then having it summarily rejected. Um, 
if it's your first time, I mean, my advice would be starting with some, starting with a relatively smaller publication, like one of the SIG publications, you're more like more likely to find an editor who has the time and energy and ability to work with you on the paper to help shape it to what they're looking for. Starting with something like Jolt Journal, you're much less likely to find an editor who's really sympathetic, who's going to be working with you extensively to revise the paper to fit what they expect of manuscripts they publish. And I guess last, do you have any advice for people that are reviewers? I, I was actually asked to be a reviewer for the Tesla Journal, um, and I, I said no because I just thought – a, I don't have enough time, and B, I don't feel confident enough. I haven't. I feel like I haven't done enough publications myself. Um, it kind of goes back to your point about how you said you were going to spend a lot of time last year putting out some of your own articles based on your PhD, but then you went back to being an editor. It's very, mm-hmm. it's a very selfless thing. It's almost. Um, I don't know. I don't really see the advantage of it now because it takes so much time, and I'd rather focus on my own my own work. So the people that yeah, do yeah. that do uh, you know do the editing, I, I have a lot of respect for, and I think it's a really tough tough skill to do. I guess I mean we mentioned before the show, make sure you're you're polite, of course, in emails and stuff like that. But do you have any sort of general, even if it's advice as far as time management or how you go about looking at something the first time, your your process of, of being an editor? It's kind of interesting to me. Um, I mean. So uh, the advice I would give to reviewers is quite a bit different from the advice I would give if if you were thinking about taking an editing position. I mean, as a reviewer, I tend to come to a manuscript and ask myself, how well formulated is the research? How well formulated is the research itself? Like there, there is the, the, the paper, um, this is one of the things I got from having worked on the PhD is the, the, the text you create isn't the research. There is something you do that is research. And then the text you create ends up representing that research in some way. But what you did, all of what you did can never possibly get into the text. And the text is never a kind of one-to-one representation of what you did for the research. So there's the kind of underlying research that the person's writing about. And as a reviewer, you're kind of being asked to evaluate that. And then one level higher, they're representing the research in their text. They're kind of explaining the research to you in in their text. And so there's this question of how sound is the underlying research? How well formulated is the underlying research? And then you get to how well are they representing that research in their text? How well are they explaining it to you in their text? And also, um, how well are they managing reader expectations as they kind of go through the text? And there are people who would argue that there's a kind of clear distinction between writing for publication and kind of postgraduate writing. Um, I'm not one of those people. I tend to see, I tend to think that um, good postgraduate writing is largely transferable into good writing for publication. Um, and if you look at like the scales that are used to evaluate um, postgraduate work, a lot of times the top of the scale say something like this manuscript is potentially publishable with some revision in a journal in the field. So there's a kind of like the top level postgraduate work tends to be evaluated as being um of a publishable or of a a journal publishable level quality. Um, The other advice I'd give to reviewers is uh, don't read too much into the person behind the text. And this comes directly from my PhD where what you would have is a lot of times in the editorial correspondence and in the review correspondence, there was a kind of evaluation of the author. There was a kind of, this person has done a lot of work on the paper, and it's obvious in the revisions, and so this paper can go through, can proceed toward publication. So there's this kind of, okay, you pass the test because you've done all this work. And then on the flip side of it, there was, this paper was not proofread, and so it doesn't get to pass the poll, 
But what I have in the PhD data that I analyzed was the fact that like this person had actually sent that paper to two different people to be proofread and then sent that resulting proofread by two different people out for review. And then you'd have the reviewer coming back and saying, this paper obviously hasn't been proofread. And so what the reviewer means by proofread and what the author thought was, was proofread are two different things. But the problem is the reviewer is trying to evaluate what they think the author did versus explaining what the problems are in the paper. And so, I mean, I've been doing this for a while. And so when I write reviews, I try to be conscious of that. I try to make sure that I'm evaluating the manuscript, not the person. But um, it's a kind of easy, it's a kind of easy trap to fall into because being that conscious of your language all the time can get exhausting at points. Well, that's great. If I if I could share one piece of advice from someone uh, I I interviewed, but they told me off air, so I'm not going to give the name because I I haven't asked if I could I could I could sh- I could share their name. But this person said that when you're when you're looking for a journal and you found the journal that you think that you can you you know you can contribute to the ongoing conversation of that journal, it's good to make sure you know who the editors of that journal is. And then if their if their research aligns with yours, it's it's also very helpful to sort of cite something that they've done in the past, which makes a mm-hmm. lot of se- which makes a lot of sense. Something that I never really really thought about before because you, you got to think the people that are going to be reading your work or reviewing your work are also going to be the top people in your field, especially mm-hmm. if they're a reviewer for that journal. So that that made a lot of sense. That that's sort of like an extra layer to make sure your article aligns with the conversation, but make sure your article aligns with people also at the top of your field. Mm-hmm. So I thought and that I was think, kind of good. Yeah. And I think another thing is if you know people who have published in places where you're trying to publish, if you can get them to look at what you're trying to submit and get them to give you some feedback before you submit it, that can make a big difference in terms of, whether the paper makes it successfully through the review process to publication or whether it's ultimately rejected. That was another one of the stories from my uh, PhD research where two of the authors had one of the editorial advisory board members of a journal give them feedback before they had officially submitted it for publication. And that person's feedback, according to them at least, ended up being key to their paper getting into review in the first place rather than being rejected by the editor without review. Wow, that's great. All right, to read the entire dissertation in exploration of the experiences of Japan-based English language teachers writing for academic publication, you can you can click the link on the show notes. There's a, there's a lot to, to, to digest there. And congratulations on... Wow, a great body of work that you produced. I, I can see how it took, what, six years? Is that how long it took? It did indeed take six years from start to finish. Wow. And then also good luck on putting some of those chapters or, or sections into journal articles. I look, I look forward to reading those. All right. Thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me to be on the show. I really enjoyed the experience. It's nice to talk about this outside yeah. of an evaluative context, outside of my Bible. So. <laughs> So it's again, it's Dr. Theron Muller, and I put your uh, contact details on the show notes as well. So if people would like to contact you with extra questions, and again, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.